We live in a world full of disappointments, hardships, brokenness, and danger. Live long enough and people will disappoint you. Live long enough and your best efforts will not be enough. Hence, perhaps the biggest disappointment of all is the fact that you will often disappoint yourself. Not only that, parents, spouses, children, friends, co-workers, presidents will fail us at some point or another. This world guarantees nothing in terms of our well-being and our safety. You can be the most respected businessman, or you can be the most accomplished doctor, or even the most powerful leader of a nation, yet still, this world does not guarantee your welfare or your safety. So, where do you run for refuge when times of trouble come? What is your source of sanity when the storms of life come your way? Most people rely on homes or their family members or friends as their safety net. But what if they turn on you? We've been studying through the Psalms for the past few weeks, and we've been learning in the past four chapters that in the case of our psalmist, David, safety was a real concern. His own son, Absalom, and also his loyal followers were against him. His own kingdom courts were no longer the place where he can safely shelter. Overnight, the king became a runaway. When David was a shepherd boy, he was concerned about safety from wild animals, from lions and bears. When David was waiting to be a king, he had to fear for his life from King Saul. When David became king, he had to run away from his own son, from his own palace. Through David, I think we are getting the lesson that no place is safe, no status is secure. And although very few of us will ever have to run or run away from our family members because of death threats or hide in caves in the fear for our lives, what our psalm this afternoon teaches us is that when life's troubles and hardships and seasons of doubt and droughts and disappointments come our way, when bouts of depression and anxiety and seasons of struggle and loneliness and uncertainties loom on the horizon indefinitely, there is one we can turn to for help. There is one we can trust amid life's trials. Psalm chapter 5 is a word of encouragement and reminder for those who are in need of refuge. When burdens, the griefs, the stresses of life are too much to bear, there is one shielding shelter. There is one guaranteed garrison. There is one faithful fortress that no threat or enemy can penetrate. Except that refuge is not a place, but a person. Our blessed assurance our righteous God and King. Amen? So this afternoon from Psalm chapter 5, I want to share with you five characteristics of our God in whom we can hope and trust in times of need. So the question that we want to answer today is, who is our God? 
Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, God is our king from verses one through three. God is holy from verses four through six. God is love from verses seven through eight. God is just from verses nine through 10. And point number five, God is our refuge, verses 11 through 12. Our king, holy, love, just, and our refuge. As we celebrate New Covenant Baptist Church's one-year anniversary today, as we recall God's goodness and faithfulness, not only in our church corporately, but in our personal lives individually, I pray that we will be reminded this afternoon who our God is, who it is we joyfully worship, serve, represent, and proclaim. And I pray that you will find much encouragement, peace, and hope, knowing that He who is sovereign over all holds us and is leading us. Amen? So without further ado, if you have your Bibles, look with me now to Psalm chapter 5. And this afternoon, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible Translation from the CSB, chapter 5. It says this. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord, consider my sighings. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me, for there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them. And may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Who is our God in times of trouble? Point number one, God is our king from verses one through three. Look with me to those verses again. It says this, including the heading, for the choir master, a director with the flutes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighings. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. This psalm provides no other historical context. It says it is a psalm of David, perhaps written by David or about David. It is for the choir director... So it is a psalm set to music, meant to be sung, set to specifically the instrumentation of flutes. The psalmist 
approaches the Lord in prayer three times in three ways as the psalmist pleads. Listen to my words. Lord, consider my signs or groanings. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. For this specific psalm, we don't know exactly why David went before the Lord with words, sighs, and sounds of crying, but we can assume the context of the previous psalms based off of 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19 when David was running from Absalom, his son's threats. But the important teaching lesson here for us through David is David's confidence in how he approaches God, whether through words or through inexpressible groanings when the burdens of our hearts are too difficult for words to utter, David knew and David shows us that God would still hear them. As verse 3 says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. And David also knew that God would answer them. As it says in the latter part of that verse, in the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. The ESV translation says for that phrase, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, but it's denoting how David prepares his heart for prayer. It's showing how David wakes up another morning with expectation that our God would hear not only his words, but his signs and his cries. As Romans 8 verse 26 says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, when we do not know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Do you get it? That the basis of our relationship with God is not our eloquent words, but it's quality time. Notice the important point of these verses. Remember the context in which David approaches the Lord. He was being swallowed up in fear in guilt, in shame, in regret, and sorrow. Yet, he approaches the Lord with such impassioned pleading and confidence and expectancy. How? The phrase, my king and my God is the answer. He knows who his God is. He knows his, who his king is. Why is this so significant? As an earthly king, David submitted himself, subjected himself to his heavenly king. Because unlike other kings of this world, in fact, just unlike many other normal, regular people of this world who wrongly think that this world revolves around them, David knew better. The Bible shows us better. David knew who his earthly authority derived from, you see. David knew who was in control over every trial, over every day, over every minute of his life. Even as one of the greatest kings Israel's history has ever known, he knew that there was a greater king. The emphasis of those three verses is the word, my. Did you notice how many times it's written there in just those three verses? My words, my sighings, my cry, my king, my God my voice, my case, seven times. And I think the psalmist is denoting that the God and the king that he's speaking of is indeed the king of kings. Our God and king is not a distant, faraway, stoic, divine being of deism. Our God is a personal, relational God. Most importantly, he is my king, 
and my God. The question for you this afternoon, is he your king and your God? The lesson here, the reminder here is when you experience trials in this life, do you run from God or do you run to God? Do you go to God in confident expectation in prayer or not? If not, why not? Here's an invitation from the psalmist that our God is a God who hears and answers our prayers, who gives attention to our need. He is our God and King who is concerned with our troubles, who knows our struggles. Amen? But why would he hear our prayers? Why is he my king and my God? Point two answers that question for us. Who is our God in times of crisis? Point number two, God is holy. Look at verses four through six. It says this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. David highlights six realities of how God sees wickedness. Subpoint number one, God does not delight in wickedness. God has no pleasure in dealing with the wicked. God is not amused by sin. He is, in fact, repulsed by sin. In a day where sin and wickedness is celebrated and championed as good and a right and as freedom, God takes a clear stance against it. There's no blurring of lines, you see. There's no compromise. There's no confusion in God's mind. Scripture is clear. Sin is sin and wickedness is wickedness and God doesn't deal with sin lightly or carelessly. So point number two, that's why it says God cannot dwell with evil. God is so incompatible with sin that coexistence with evil is impossible. This is why it is impossible for a genuine Christian to continue in an ongoing lifestyle of sin. You see, there is no such thing as a Christian murderer. There is no such thing as a Christian racist. There is no such thing as a Christian drunkard. There is no such thing as a gay or lesbian Christian, you see. If your sin is your identity, you are simply not a Christian. When Christians commit sin, we repent of sin. We trust in God's forgiveness, and we obey His words. We walk and rest and are satisfied in Him alone. So point number three, God will not tolerate the arrogant. It says in verse 5, the boastful cannot stand in your sight. Pride in any manner has no ground to stand before God. So point number four, to make it more explicit, it says God hates those who do evil. It says you hate all evildoers. These words are extremely offensive in a politically correct world, is it not? But God rightly views and acts towards sin, those who are doers of evil. Hence, Subpoint number five, God destroys liars. Verse six says, you destroy those who tell lies. The devil currently runs this earth for the time being. God has ordained it. God has allowed it so that the principalities of evil seems to have its reign. But it is an already but not yet reality, is it not? God is sanctifying his church. And those who are his are being saved from their sins in this broken world. 
We have to understand the bad news before the good news in order to appreciate it and fully understand it. And so that's why it seems the enemy has a stronghold in our culture and our society. They say there is no God. They say God doesn't care. They say God doesn't love you. Don't trust in God's word. God is a slave driver. Christianity is outdated. Christians are bigots. It's the same lies. It's the same deception of the enemy. But liars will be destroyed. Subpoint number six, God abhors murderers and deceivers. It says it right there, doesn't it? The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Whoa, it's kind of serious, right? What's this talk about murderers? It's getting directly to the point of why in this broken, sin-sickened state, the flesh, the world, and Satan continues to rage. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Death is its end. It is the inevitable goal of the flesh, of the world, and our spiritual enemies. All of these six realities is because God is holy. God is set apart. He is unlike anything of earth. There is no one like him. The holiness of God is what makes God, God. So while death reigns on earth in our fallen state, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, according to John 10.10, which is the reason why sinful beings like us can approach God in times of guilt and shame because of who God is. Point number three, because God is love. Verses seven through eight. Look at those verses. It says this, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Here is David's confidence. Here is the reason for the psalmist's expectant approach to God. In his fear, in his guilt, in his shame, David can come before the Lord with confident expectation. Here is the motivation behind David's daily morning devotion. David says, but I. Contrasting himself from the wicked and evildoers and murderers and deceivers, but I. But wait a second now. David did all of that, didn't he? He manipulated bathing Bathsheba to sleep with him. He abuses the kingly authority to force her into bed. He lied to her husband Uriah, got him drunk to make him sleep with her to cover up her pregnancy. And when that didn't work, he used his power again to put deceptively Uriah at the front lines of battle where he gets killed. But David says, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. What David is saying is, I approach your throne of grace. I enter your presence with boldness, not because of the good that I have done, despite the wickedness that I have done, because of the abundance of your faithful love. I come before you. You see, the original meaning of the word is God's hesed love, the word faithful his loyal, merciful, overflowing grace, love, his covenantal love, that God will keep his word to the end, love. That is the basis upon which we also can go before God and petition as David pled, Lord, 
Lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Take a notice of that funky phrase there in the middle of that verse. Because of my adversaries. Such a particular verse and an unusual verse in that phrase, isn't it? Lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Think about that for a second. My son, Micaiah, when a pebble gets into his crocs, he stops everything and waits for me to get the pebble out. He says, Dad, something is in my shoe. It doesn't matter if we're crossing the road. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a parking lot where we're about to get run over. He says, Dad, get this pebble out of my shoe. That's the purpose of life's adversaries, you see. The trials, the relational conflicts, and the seasons of humiliation in our lives, in one sense, is God's purpose for us. In one sense, God is not the cause of affliction in our lives. We live in a broken world. But you can be sure that God uses the painful realities and even our enemies, even our adversaries of our lives to cause us to depend on Him, to rely on Him, to call on Him. I love that prayer, make your way straight before me. What David is saying is help me see clearly. Help me know the way. Help me walk straight. Help me not to take a bunch of U-turns when I follow my GPS, right, in D.C. Make your way straight before me. Oh my goodness, here it is. David is pointing us to the one path that leads us in the narrow way. David was another voice crying out as Isaiah 43 says, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for God in the desert. I'm going to just dive right into the main point because I have no time today. They told me to preach 15 minutes. I'm already past that time. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. This is the best news you will ever hear. CNN and Fox News and Twitter doesn't even come close Sinners can run straight to the Father because of this amazing gospel. That God, who is holy, perfect in all of His ways, created man in His image for His glory and yours and my good. He gave us everything that we would ever need and everything that we would ever desire in Him. But He didn't make us robots, did He? He gave us a choice. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. And I love the next phrase in Genesis 2 where I just read that verse. What a profound truth. God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And oftentimes we think God is talking about a spouse. But God is talking about it's not good for man to be alone apart from himself, apart from God. We weren't created to exist apart from God on our own. So having been tempted by Satan's lies, man distrusted God's word and desired to be like God which God considers to be a rebellion against God. As a result, we were eternally separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. For it says in our psalm today, for a holy God cannot dwell with evil, but God in his faithful, merciful, overflowing covenant love He had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man and forgive man for their sins. What was that plan? To send his only son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live, 
to die the death that we should have died, and he took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid our debt that we should have paid in eternal hell. He was dead. He was buried. They thought it was over, but it wasn't over, was it? They thought it was finished, but it wasn't finished, was it? Because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, defeating sin, Satan, and death forever. Christ proved himself to be the promised and prophesied Messiah, promising life abundant and life eternal to all who would repent of their sins and trust in him. So if there's anyone here this afternoon who is not a Christian, or if you're not sure that you are one, welcome. We thank you so much for joining us today. We are a gathering of people who have confessed that we are sinners as well in need of a Savior. We are a people who confess we are morally and spiritually entirely bankrupt apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection. So if you're not a Christian here, or if you're not a Christian, but yet you do feel the need of Him, follow as we have done. Confess that you are a sinner. Acknowledge it. Repent of your sins. That means to turn from sin. Believe with your heart that Jesus died and rose again for you and trust him. You can trust him today, right now in this moment. You can follow him today. That is his invitation. Trust him with your life. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, I'll be standing right there at the back door at the end of service. Jeremy will be standing at the outside door or talk to somebody smiling next to you and ask them how you can follow Jesus. Point number four, who is our God in times of weakness? God is just. Verses 9 through 10, it says this, for there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God, and let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. Let it be made clear, brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as an innocent person in this world. Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The emphasis is all. It includes all of us and everyone else in this world. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have followed the way of the world. And when they do, when you do, you will die and you will face the consequences of your choices. Simply, you will get what you'll get. So let it be made clear from these verses. You follow the way of the world. There is nothing reliable destruction is within them. God hates that the world is promoting such deadly ways of life guised as freedom when reality, in reality, it's slavery. Following your passions, following the passions of this world will get you one thing guaranteed, dead and in hell under the judgment of God. You notice that verse? These are dramatic phrasing, isn't it? Their throat is an open grave. What that means is they speak, the world speaks death They're promoting death, death, death all around. They flatter with their tongues. They tickle your ears with lies. Do what you want. Do what you feel. Do what they do. But they're all lies. David prays, punish them. God, let them fall by their own schemes. In the end, it is their own counsel that will be their graves. So let it be made clear their sins are crimes against God. It's rebellion against God. It says that they're specifically drive them out because of their many crimes for they rebel against you. God is just. And just as a good judge will punish evil, just as a good judge will not let a murderer or a pedophile run loose on the streets, 
God will act justly towards rebels and sinners. So again, what then is our hope? What was David's hope in his sins? Fifth and final point, who is God in our rebellion? Point number five, God is our refuge. Verses 11 through 12. Look at those verses. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. The lonely, the afflicted psalmist David, the fugitive, the deceiver, the adulterer, murderer David invites now all who would trust in him to take refuge in him. You notice how the personal form, my, 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 but I, 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 has turned into plural form. Let all who take refuge, may those who love your name. A personal song of lament has turned into a chorus of corporate worship, of rejoicing, of shouts of joy forever. As Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Here is an invitation and a reminder for those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, for all who are weary and heavy laden with fears and guilt and pain, run to the one who is our refuge. Who is he? Look at verse 12. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. That's why I picked a CSB translation today. Bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. The only reason sinful, broken, miserable, sad people like you and me can come before God with confident expectation daily. Why his mercies are new every morning is because of the one in verse 12. Make note the sharp contrast from the plural form in verse 11 to the singular form in verse 12 in the original language. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. It is only through the righteous one who is surrounded by favor that we can come before God and be blessed. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, to glory, to life, to peace, to hope, to security, and to eternity. Amen? Many of you know my personal testimony, but my non-Christian parents sent me at the age of seven to America to achieve the American dream at the age of seven, to get a better education, to get a better future. They sent me to live with my aunt and uncle previous to then, 1990. I only saw them once when I was like four or five years old, and my memory was very vague of them. Uh, in the early years when I came to America to live with them, I didn't know if I could trust them. I didn't know if they loved me or if they'll send me away if I was a bad boy. And let me say, I was not an easy child. I was a bad boy. One morning, I woke up really early. It was around winter time when I first moved to the States, so it was a cold morning. And for a, for a moment, forgetting that I was not at my parents' home, I ran into my aunt and uncle's room. I saw them sleeping still. Then it hit me. It wasn't my mom and dad. I used to jump into my mom and dad's warm, cozy bed on cold mornings between my mom and my dad to catch a few extra hours of sleep but here I was, a major dilemma, a young seven-year-old missing his mom and dad. I was supposed to be a brave boy. Would they think I'm weird, my aunt and uncle? 
If I jumped into their bed, I was hesitating. I was thinking about going back to my room and also probably not so subtle, walking into their room. You know how young kids just, my kids are so loud in the morning anyways. (laughs) Well, my uncle heard me and it was like he read my mind. He said, come in, throwa in Korean. So without thinking too much, I jumped into their bed, kind of feeling awkward. And as my uncle opened his arms and his warm blanket and invited me in, I nuzzled myself between my aunt and my uncle. My uncle covered me with his blanket, and he said, love is covering. Love is covering. In Korean, 사랑은 덮는 거야. Love is covering. The ESV translation says in verse 12, you cover him with favor like a shield. This is the state of every child of God through Christ. His blood, his sacrifice on the cross covers our sin. This is why 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sin. Have you experienced the love of Christ? The love of Christ covers us. He is the refuge of those who have received his righteousness. He is our refuge of righteousness. We are covered by his favor. Brothers and sisters, as we recall the goodness and faithfulness of God in our lives and through the first year of NCBC, let us continue to boldly approach him and proclaim him who is our king, who is holy, who is loving, who is just, and our refuge. Whether in life or death, may our lives, our hopes, our joys, and our security be anchored on him, on Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.